Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Book of Mormon Central's Come Follow Me Insights. Today, a special episode on the lectures on faith. So, why a special episode on lectures on faith in a Doctrine and Covenants year, Taylor? So, yeah, here we are, many, many months into studying the Doctrine and Covenants, and originally, uh, 1833, the revelations that Joseph Smith had received were published in a book called The Book of Commandments. 1835, additional revelations had been received, including a series of theological discussions prepared by Joseph Smith and others. It gets included in the Book of Commandments. The book gets updated, added to, and it gets renamed in 1835. Let's just put this down real quick. And is called The Doctrine and Covenants. And by the way, the word covenants and commandments are actually uh, interrelated. So what's the doctrine? So before we had a bunch of revelations that we call the Book of Commandments. Those commandments are still there as covenants. What's the doctrine? It turns out the lectures on faith were, are those doctrines. Of course, there are lots of great doctrines in the doctrines and uh, covenants, but the lectures on faith was what actually instituted or led to the renaming of the book to Doctrine and Covenants. That's what we're going to spend time on today, why these doctrines matter. So the, the side note here is that in 1835, uh, that's when they first get put in. They, these lectures, there are seven theological lectures surrounding the topic of faith given by Joseph Smith, Sidney Rigdon, and other leaders of the church in Kirtland, Ohio during the winter of 1834-1835. Keep in mind, back in, back in those early days of the church, you'll notice that many of these early saints, they're farmers, they're tradesmen, and they'll often do a lot of their, their study of language, study of the scriptures, study of doctrines, um, training opportunities, in the dead of winter, when they can't be doing much on their farm or with their trade in many cases. And that is exactly what's happening here in Kirtland. It's November, December, January, February, 1834-1835 timeframe when they're delivering these lectures, and then it's later on in 1835 when they – when Joseph Smith prepares them for inclusion in this new edition of the Doctrine and Covenants, and they stay there until 1921. So in 1921, the church's scripture committee, Joseph Fielding Smith, James E. Talmadge, and John A. Widsow were uh, tasked with, with a new publication of the scriptures, and it was at that point where the first 75 pages of the Doctrine and Covenants, which were these lectures on faith, where they were removed. And some would ask, well, why did they take them out? It's because in the, the reasons, the, the rationale they gave was because the lectures on faith are not ever claiming to be 
a direct revelation from God like the sections in the Doctrine and Covenants that we've been covering. And so people were confused holding them as equal to direct revelation from God. For that reason, they were removed. And there were other reasons as well. It's more like more like school lessons. Yeah. So deeply valuable, but the Scripture Committee felt like we should preserve revelations that are direct from God, and you can continue to read these for, for profit and benefit, and that's why we're spending time here today. So from an etymological standpoint, if we look at where the word faith originates, it actually comes from a very ancient word which has its origin and meaning of to trust, confide, or persuade. So as we jump into the lectures on faith, you might think of the word faith has the synonym of to trust. Very powerful word. And think about how we are asked to have faith in God. You could say God asks us to trust him. It's a very powerful word. Now before we jump in, let me just give a number of other words that are actually related to the same root word from which faith, the word faith, is generated. So in the English language, the origin of the word faith is also etymologically related to all these other words I've put on the board, some of which you may have seen in other contexts. Things like to abide, we ask the Lord, abide with me. It's a form of trust and confidence. An abode, it's a place that you go and live and dwell, but it's also a place you can trust will be there as a safe place of and a source of safety. Um, an affidavit is a trustworthy, truthful statement you may make in a claim for a court proceeding. Um, bonafide, or confident, confide, confidence, fealty, fidelity. Again, all these words come from the same root word that produces the word faith. The word federal in the United States and in other, and in other uh, countries around the world, they talk about the, their governments as federal governments, meaning the government should be something that we trust and they trust back, that you cannot actually have a society where trust breaks down. And when people try to break trust or cause doubt in trust, it actually starts to break down government. And why do we call it federal government? Is because there should be trust within the society that we're all in this together to make the world a better place. A federation, a fiance, right? Somebody promises one to another person, I promise to marry you. There's trust and faith and confidence that, that will happen. And fiduciary, kind of a technical term, that somebody might have some responsibilities in um, a monetary sense to take, uh, take care of resources on behalf of others. It all is based on the idea of having trust and confidence. So as we press forward to understand more these beautiful lectures on faith, you might think about this synonym to trust and how God is asking us to trust. The lectures on faith are all about how we can learn how God is absolutely trustworthy and we can trust him but total faith in him and his son to find life and salvation. I am so excited to share this particular episode with you today from the lectures on faith. Uh, I have to tell you in, in full disclosure that before my mission, I was able to take uh, multiple institute classes um, during that one semester because I was going to leave into the MTC before the semester was going to end so I couldn't start my college classes yet. So I had lots of room and I took a lot of institute classes and that was transformational for me. 
and helped me in, in amazing ways. There was one particular class that semester that quite literally changed my life for the better, and it was a class specifically on the lectures on faith taught by Brother Jerry Wilson there at the Logan LDS Institute. Uh, that class opened my mind, it opened my heart, it changed the way I read scriptures, it changed the way I served as a missionary, it changed the way I studied as a student when I came home from that mission as I uh, got married, started raising children, it changed the way I read and marked my scriptures, and it, it has had a huge impact in how I see the principles of the gospel and how I teach uh, students today. Um, so I am really, really excited to jump in and share some of those, uh, for me, what, what came, became for me life-changing experiences by studying these seven lectures. So let's dive in. The lectures on faith. There are seven lectures recorded, and by the way, this, these lectures, they were in essence, they were the MTC, the Missionary Training Center experience for our missionaries in 1834-1835. Before they would go out and serve their missions, they would come into the School of the Prophets and they would discuss these theological lectures, and after all but one of the lectures, they have this question and answer um, section called a catechism where it helps to increase the understanding where certain questions could be asked and then the answers could be given that would relate to the lecture that had just been been received by the people. Um, I'm not going to spend any time in the, in the catechism sections today in this special episode, um, but I would recommend if you get the book that you read through all of it. Uh, some of them are, are quite fascinating, those questions and answers. So let me give you a really quick overview of the lectures on faith before we, we dive in, and it's important to note that these are very unique. They're theological discussions, they're very systematic in how it's addressing the topic of faith. It's beautifully laid out, it's very logical. Uh, scholars today uh, debate as to who wrote what parts or who contributed what parts. I don't know. I, it looks like there's a lot of influence from Sidney Rigdon and others, but what we do know is that Joseph Smith taught these lectures and he prepared them for publication in the Doctrine and Covenants in 1835. So whether he actually wrote the lectures himself or whether he dictated any portion of the lectures, to me is less important than the fact that Joseph used them fairly extensively and relied on them to teach these important principles. So, here we go. Um, lecture one is going to – they call them in the lectures on faith lecture first, lecture second, lecture third, so on and so forth. So lecture first talks about faith, what it is. So it's this overarching uh, description and definition of what faith is. The second through the sixth lectures are the objects upon which faith rests. So this, is, this isn't typical language that we would use today 
in the in the 21st century like they did back then objects upon which faith rests uh, meaning the foundation pillar structure that we place faith upon so that our faith can be firm steadfast and immovable or as the lectures on faith describe it faith unto life and salvation it's not just just simple faith in in uh, natural laws or theories or principles. This is faith in God that leads to life and salvation. So what what are the the, the objects upon which it rests in order to make it uh, work for us? And then the final lecture discusses the effects which flow from it. So, we have to see what what happens when I have that kind of faith. So that's our our quick overview of the the whole series of lectures. Now let's dive in to the first lecture, faith, what it is. Okay, so when we open up to that first lecture, the very first verse, I'll call them verses, even though they're paragraphs, but it's when we're, when we're studying in a uh, scripture context, which is where this originally was found, we generally, it's easier to just refer to verses. So verse 1 says, faith being the first principle in revealed religion and the foundation of all righteousness, did you notice that? It's the foundation of all righteousness. It's the beginning point of anything good. Necessarily claims the first place in a course of lectures which are designed to unfold to the, under, unfold to the understanding the doctrine of Jesus Christ. So the purpose of the lectures on faith isn't to begin and end with faith, it's to reveal the doctrine of Christ and what role faith has within the doctrine of Christ. So then it introduces what I had just written on the board, those in verse 3, 4, and 5. It gives you the what, it, what faith is, the objects upon which it rests, and the effects which flow from it. And then we jump in to this paragraph. Without it, meaning faith, without faith, both mind and body would be in a state of inactivity and all their exertions would cease, both physical and mental. Why is that? It's because faith is the, the cause of action in all beings. We wouldn't do anything without faith. Notice he goes on to say here in verse 11, and by the way, some of these verses are very long. Some of them are longer than an entire page. So towards the bottom of verse 11 he says, in a word, is there anything that you would have done, either physical or mental, if you had not previously believed? It's that idea of we would never turn on a light switch, we would never turn on a shower, we would never turn a key in a car, we would never open a door if we didn't believe that it would produce certain results. So they're beginning this lectures on faith concept with most basic elements of action that I have to believe 
before it will cause me to do certain things. Um, now, he goes on to say, turn your thoughts on your own minds and see if faith is not the moving cause of all action in yourselves, and if the moving cause in you, is it not in all other intelligent beings? Now let's jump down to verse 16. Had it not been for the principle of faith, the worlds never would have been framed, neither would man have been formed of the dust. It is the principle by which Jehovah works and through which he exercises power over all temporal as well as eternal things. Did you catch that? Faith is the principle by which God does all of his work. Now, most of you watching might think to yourself, wait a minute, God doesn't need faith because the Book of Mormon in Alma 32, it, it describes faith as this belief and, and you have to plant a seed and nurture that belief and that faith will grow, and that's a funny way to picture God functioning by belief the way we talk about it in the Book of Mormon. Joseph Smith and others in the School of the Prophets, they're describing faith as more than just belief, but as a principle of power. In fact, they say that very directly in verse 15 of the first lecture. By this we understand that the principle of power, which existed in the bosom of God, by which the worlds were framed, was faith. Brothers and sisters, there's, there is so much to discover in this principle that we call faith, and, and more specifically, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that sometimes we get really excited about studying the mysteries and the deep doctrines of the gospel. Can I just say, if you pick up the lectures on faith and just dive into this topic, you're going to discover that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is a deep enough topic to keep you busy and spiritually engaged for a long, long, long time without having to worry about some of the, the, the far-reaching mysteries that haven't been fully revealed yet. So, to finish the first, uh, the first lecture, I'm going to jump clear down to verse 24, the final verse in this lecture. Listen to this. Faith, then, is the first great governing principle which has power, dominion, and authority over all things. By it they exist, by it they are upheld, by it they are changed, or by it they remain agreeable to the will of God. Without it, or faith, there is no power, and without power there could be no creation nor existence. Now, isn't that wonderful from an eternal perspective, from, from God's view to, to discuss it that way, but what about from our view? Brothers and sisters, there is nothing that you are going to go into and try to create or uphold without faith. You can't do it. You will never go into a marriage or never go into parenthood, or never go into an educational endeavor, or an occupational endeavor, or any kind of a relationship without faith, and it's deep and abiding faith that upholds that, that pursuit, whatever it is, um, in a family context, in a home context, 
it's faith that upholds that, uh, that relationship and carries it forward. Now, we go into the second lecture. Again, I'm skipping all of the catechism, those Q&A, the questions and answers that come. Let's jump right into the second lecture. Uh, verse 2, we here observe that God is the only supreme governor and independent being in whom all fullness and perfection dwell, who is omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient, without beginning of days or end of life, and that in him every good gift and every good principle dwell. Let me, let me explain that in, in a way that I think might make more sense. For you and me, we have to have faith in things, either in laws of nature, science, um, our learning, or ultimately in the gospel of Jesus Christ and in the doctrine of Christ, the first principle of the gospel is faith, and then you'll notice, in the Lord Jesus Christ, or faith in God. The faith is in somebody. It's not in myself. Whereas verse 2 of the lecture second says God is independent and he's supreme. God doesn't have to have faith in other people. His his level of faith, not a belief, but his principle of power is in the knowledge of his capacities. His doesn't have to be rooted in other people, but my faith and your faith has to be rooted in God to have any kind of power at all. So after introducing God's sovereign nature, he then goes through and tells the story of Adam and Eve and the, the creation and their experiences in the Garden of Eden. And if we jump down then to verse 18, we're introduced to this new concept that says in order for us to have faith in God, because it can't be independent, in order for us to do that, we have to have some things in place. First, you've got to know that there is a God. You've got to know that he's there. So after talking about all this story of Adam and Eve and how they came to know of, of God's existence, notice this, verse 18, two important items are shown from the former quotations, which took us through all of the story of the creation and the fall. First, after man was created, he was not left without intelligence or understanding to wander in darkness and spend an existence in ignorance and doubt as to the real fact by whom he was created or unto whom he was, an, he was amenable for his conduct. God conversed with him face to face. In his presence he was permitted to stand, and from his own mouth he was permitted to receive instruction. He heard his voice, walked before him, and gazed upon his glory, while intelligence burst upon his understanding and enabled him to give names to the vast assemblage of his Maker's works. Notice that then from there Adam and Eve fall, they leave the Garden of Eden, and the lectures on faith describe in this next portion that even though they were cast out of the garden, they didn't lose their intelligence that they had gained in the presence of God. There was no veil um, 
separating them from Eden, even though there was a veil separating them when they were in Eden from the pre-mortal realm, they were able to bring that knowledge from their their experiences in the Garden of Eden with them as they now start raising their family. And so then we get this description in uh, verse 30 after talking about the story of Cain slaying Abel and some of the struggles that Adam and Eve's family had after they left. Verse 30 says, the object of the foregoing quotations is to show to this class the way by which mankind were first made acquainted with the existence of God, that it was by a manifestation of God to man and that God continued after man's transgression to manifest himself to them, to him and to his posterity, and notwithstanding they were separated from his immediate presence, they could not see his face, they continued to hear his voice. And so now they start spreading this word. So the lecture second starts giving you all of the genealogies in the Old Testament of the patriarchs down through all of those generations, and it's pages and pages of it until you get clear down to verse 55 and it says, let us here observe that after any portion of the human family are made acquainted with the important fact that there is a God who has created and does uphold all things, the extent of their knowledge respecting his character and glory will depend upon their diligence and faithfulness in seeking after him. It's one thing to know that there's a God, it's another thing to seek after him and to be diligent and obedient to what we have received, seeking to get more. Uh, you'll notice that the devils, they even believe and tremble. They have belief in God, but they're not seeking to become like him. They're not seeking to do his will. They're only seeking to do their own will. And so just because we have a knowledge that God exists, isn't sufficient. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient. It's a good starting point. You have to have it as a starting point, but you have to keep going, and the lectures on faith are going to help us go to those next levels with our belief. What do you do with a belief in God, and how do you act once you have that belief in God? And the last concept that the second lecture teaches is how God spreads this knowledge of his existence is by choosing special witnesses who witness things from him directly, then he closes the veil again. Now they go and they bear testimony to other people saying, I know God lives. I've seen him. I know him. Those are usually the roles of dispensation heads like Adam and Eve and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Moses, Jesus himself and Joseph Smith. There are other prophets who have seen God, but it's usually the dispensation heads who begin this process of human testimony where once they spread the word, the Holy Ghost bears witness to the people who hear their testimony, they now become independent witnesses and they can go out and preach that they too now know God lives and will cover some additional things that they can teach. 
and that is how the gospel is spread rather than God revealing himself to the masses. Uh, he does it through these appointed special witnesses, through prophets, seers, and revelators. Now, we turn our attention to lecture third. So, the third lecture begins with this description of three things that are necessary in order for any rational and intelligent being to exercise faith in God unto life and salvation. Once again, this is a distinction. It's much more than just being able to say, yeah, I believe in God, um, which is an important thing to be able to say, but we eventually need to move to the next levels. And here's what the, the third lecture tells us. In order for us to have faith in God, you need three things. Those three things are, first, now notice the wording that it uses here, because each one of these words is carefully chosen, I think. Number one, an idea that God exists. You have to have an idea. Number two, once you have that idea, and we've already told or taught this from the second lecture that that idea that God exists, it comes from human testimony, and in the lectures on faith he discusses this idea that it would be impossible for a person to discover that God exists unless God revealed himself to special witnesses to then bear that human testimony to others. So once I have the correct – or sorry, the idea that he actually exists, then I need – notice the word that they use here – the correct idea of his character – what kind of a character is he – his perfection and his attributes. This is such a critical element in the process that I need to not just have an idea of what his attributes and characteristics are, but I need a correct idea, because there are a lot of ideas floating around the world about what kind of a being God is and, and what his attributes are and how he thinks and how he treats people, but we need to have a correct idea, which, by the way, is going to be lecture three, four, and five are going to cover that helping us understand who God is and what kind of a being he is. And then the third thing that is required in order for us as humans to have faith in God unto life and salvation is we have to have a, an actual knowledge. Notice the wording here. It's not an idea, it's not a correct idea, it's an actual knowledge that the course that you are pursuing in your life, the course of your life is in accordance with God's will, that you are pleasing the Lord. You're doing what God wants you to do. Until you have that, the lectures on faith, faith would teach that we, we don't have sufficient faith 
unto life and salvation to access the Savior's merits, mercy, and grace in their fullness. So now if you go to Lecture Third, verse 7, listen to this. As we have been indebted to a revelation which God made of himself to his creatures in the first instance, for the idea of his existence, so in like manner we are indebted to the revelations which he has given to us for a correct understanding of his character, perfections, and attributes, because without the revelations which he has given us, no man by searching could find out God. He's saying there's so much more at play here than just God being in heaven and just existing. As, as if a statue could exist or, or a building could exist or something like that. We need to know how he exists. What kind of a being is he? How does he think? What's going on? How, how, does, he, how does he treat people? And we will never discover that on our own. It has to be revealed, so we look to the scriptures. So you'll notice as you go through the lectures on faith, it's, it's fascinating to me they only use the Old and the New Testament. They quote them extensively. In uh, Lecture 5th and some of the other lectures, you're going to get some concepts that seem to come from the Book of Mormon, but the Book of Mormon is never directly quoted in parentheses, in quotation marks, which is fascinating. They're focused on the Old and the New Testament largely in the lectures on faith, which could have something to do with the rebuke that the church received back in section 84, where they're treating too lightly the Book of Mormon. Um, so it's wonderful when you can add concepts from the Book of Mormon to what you're reading in the lectures on faith with their understanding of the, of the biblical passages. It becomes even more powerful. So now, as we turn the page over, he picks up um, in verse 13, giving us what the character of God is. And by the way, this is not an exhaustive list. They're giving us six character traits for God that have been revealed in Scripture, okay? Notice the six. And so they're going to list them first in verse 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, and then they spend the rest of the lecture expounding on each one individually and its, its role in building up our faith. Remember what we're doing here? Uh, lectures two through six are what are the objects upon which faith rests? Well, some of the objects are that you have an idea that he exists and a correct idea of his characteristics, perfection, and attributes. So that's what we're building up is as you discover each one of these, it becomes yet another pillar, another foundation for your faith in Christ. So the first one that he mentions is that God is a creator and an upholder of all his works. So later on in the, the lecture third, as he's describing this, it's beautiful because they're in the school of the prophets, they're learning, if you didn't have a correct idea that God is a God of creation and an upholder of his works, then you wouldn't be able to have faith in that being unto life and salvation. Your faith would be weakened. If God is weak, 
if he's up in heaven, sitting back, looking out at the vast expanse of the universe, scratching his head, twiddling his thumbs, saying, wow, I sure hope that somewhere we're going to be able to have some sort of a planet where we can send our children to have a mortal experience, then you can't really have faith in that God unto life and salvation. So it's fascinating that they opened up with that particular characteristic trait, that God is a God of creation and a God of power to uphold his creations, that he's not a victim of the chaos in the universe, that he can take matter that is unorganized and in a state of disarray and he can put uh, creative power into that and form worlds and solar systems and galaxies exactly the way he wants them to be formed where he can then send life to, to inhabit those, uh, those new creations and uphold those creations. So it would be really hard to have faith in God if we just believed he created the world but then became a victim of all of the natural laws that govern the world. Part of this first characteristic is that he is also an upholder, so it gives us more foundation for our faith to say, as President Nelson has invited us to, to repeatedly do, let God prevail. So when natural disasters happen, when things happen in the universe or in the world, we trust God, we place our faith in him, and it, it becomes more, more firm and steadfast. The second character uh, of God trait that they list is that he is merciful and gracious. Imagine Imagine worshiping a god. So you say, okay, well, I have an idea that God exists, but that god is angry at me. He's vengeful. He doesn't like me, uh, and he's annoyed every time I mess up. Well, then it's pretty hard to have faith in that god, whereas if you picture a merciful and gracious god who is slow to anger, abundant in goodness, and that he was so from everlasting and will be to everlasting, now all of a sudden I can start exercising faith in that being, in that God, because I'm not afraid of him striking me down when I struggle with mortal weakness and sin or addiction or doubt or fear or any of those elements. The third thing that they mention is that he changes not, neither is there variableness in him. They go on to describe, you can't have faith in a god who changes the rules halfway through the game or at the end of the game. It, it would be terrible for us to go through life assuming one thing and then arrive at the quote-unquote pearly gates and have him say, oh, you know what, yeah, you, I told you to do all that, but I'm, I've changed my mind. I'm not, I'm not requiring that anymore, or I'm requiring other things that you didn't happen to do. You can't have faith in God unto life and salvation if God is a moving target. 
So this attribute or this characteristic trait is very, very critical, number three, that he changes not. Some would say, well, wait a minute, he's changing things all the time. You're right. He's changing practices and procedures and policies all the time to match the needs of the world and the culture and the environment in which we live, but God's perfected attributes and characteristics are not changing. He, he's not running an experiment with us. This is not a rough draft. He's not practicing. He knows what he's doing, and he's not changing. He's allowing us to adapt and change, and he's allowing the church to change because that's what a perfect God would do is help us survive and live to the greatest degree of light and truth and knowledge as possible in whatever circumstance we, we may find ourselves. The fourth item, he is a God of truth and he cannot lie. When he makes a covenant with you, when he comes and makes a promise to you, he will never, ever, ever break that promise. It is firm, steadfast, and immovable. He will never deceive you. That is not in his nature. He is a God of truth, and you and I can have absolute faith in a God like that who, who isn't trying to trick you or, or deceive you in any way, shape, or form. He is a God of truth. Fifthly, he is no respecter of persons. Some of you maybe have heard of this phrase and some of you maybe are unfamiliar with it. Let me, let me demonstrate what a respecter of persons would be. If you were at church and somebody came up to you and said, hey, um, your ministering brothers are going to come to your home this afternoon at 4 p.m. for a visit. How would you respond? What would you do if you went home at noon and you know the ministering brothers are going to come over at 4? What would you do and how would you respond? What if somebody came up to you and said, hey, we're we have a really unique opportunity in conjunction with our coming stake conference, um, the president of the church, the prophet himself, is going to come to your home at four o'clock this afternoon, and you now go home and it's noon. What are you going to do when you go home, knowing the prophet's going to come to your home in four hours? My hunch is that you will do things very differently knowing the prophet is going to come compared to if your ministering brothers are going to come four hours from now. That is a demonstration of us being respecters of persons or a respecter of title, position, authority, power in the world and these, these ways that we look at each other. So this fifth characteristic trait that God is no respecter of persons implies that you do not worship a God who is up in heaven looking down at all of his creations, all of, all of the, the, the children of our heavenly parents, you don't have God looking down saying, oh, the Queen of England is praying to me, I'm going to listen to her, and then I've got this uh, person that's homeless and that is a drug addict, and that has had major problems, 
and he's praying to me at the same time, but I nobody knows about him and nobody cares about him, but the Queen of England, she's praying to me. I'm going to listen to her. If that's how God treated us, you and I would never be able to have faith in him to the degree that would lead to life and salvation because we would always be a little bit unsure of our standing before God. This attribute right here is so critical that every one of the children of our heavenly parents can go to God in prayer and know that they are children of God and that their prayer will be heard on equal footing with everybody else. That is a powerful characteristic trait. Now the sixth one, God is a God of love. You cannot have faith in God unto life and salvation if you picture a God that despises you, if you picture a God who disdains you, or picture a God who just is annoyed by you and just kind of puts up with you. Uh, think about this. When a little baby is born, that baby cries at inopportune times, makes a lot of noise, um, it soils its diapers, it demands to be fed when it wants to be fed, it costs you a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of lost sleep. So why do we keep putting up with these little creatures? It's because there's this deep underlying feeling of love for these, these children of ours. We love them so much that we don't look at what it's costing us. We keep infusing life and we keep teaching and we keep forgiving and we keep working with and we keep nurturing and feeding and helping them to grow to become who they need to become and who they have the capacity to become. If we as mortal parents can figure that out, how much more do perfect uh, eternal parents have that figured out? God is a God motivated by love. It's not just this outward thing, it's part of the divine characteristic. God is love, and without that, you and I can't have full faith in, in God unto life and salvation. Now, before I close lecture third and go to lecture fourth, let me just say this. As you look at that list on the board, one through six, it's nice to know, it's, in fact, it's essential to know those things about God in order for us to have faith in him. But you're going to find, I'm going to give you kind of a, a, a spoiler here that comes in lecture seventh. The whole point of this is for you and me to have a blueprint to be able to see a prototype of what we're trying to become. Little children have the capacity to grow up to become like their parents. You and I have the capacity to grow up to become like Jesus Christ, who is our great prototype, to become joint 
heirs with him. So as you look at this list, don't stop by thinking or seeing the list as, oh, those are nice descriptors of what God is like. That is true, but it's incomplete because that very same list also happens to be a description of who you have the capacity to become, and it's not too early to start working with the Lord Jesus Christ on becoming more like him through each of these attributes. In fact, uh, Brother Jerry Wilson, when I took this class, he, he used a, a green, a dark green, very similar to the color of this book, a dark green scripture pencil, marking pencil, and every time he would come across one of the characteristics or attributes or perfections of God in scripture, he would mark it with dark green. Green things grow, and I want to grow to become more like Jesus. I, I adopted that practice in my own scriptures, and now if you were to grab my, my Bible or my triple combination of the scriptures and open them up to any page, you would see the page splashed with this dark green color, here a little, there a lot, all showing these different attributes and characteristics of God that are giving me kind of an idea of this is the type of person I want to grow to become. These are my targets that I'm, I'm trying to implement in my life so that I no longer just say, I believe in God or I think God's there, but the more you practice those attributes by seeking to, to identify them and then seeking to put them into your life, the more you're able to say, I know God lives and I know his perfected characteristic and attributes and, and his, his traits, what kind of a being he is, and I'm striving to become more like him. I'm, I'm growing up in Christ from grace to grace to become more like him. But that's hard to do if you don't even know what you're shooting for. It's pretty hard to shoot arrows at a target that you can't see because you have a blindfold on. What Lectures on Faith does for me is it takes the blindfold off and it reveals the target so I can see the goal, what I'm, what I'm aiming for. It doesn't mean I'm going to be perfect at doing these things, and so don't beat yourself up when you struggle. It means that you at least can, can recognize what you're seeking to become. Now, let's shift over to Lecture Fourth. This is where they use a different word than character. He uses the word attributes. Um, you could spend some time figuring out what the difference between the character of God is and the attributes of God, but I'm just going to list off these six attributes that come up in Lecture Fourth. So the first one he lists, and by the way, you're going to notice two of them get repeated from Lecture Third. Um, in fact, before we, before we do this, listen to this quote in verse 2, lecture 4th. The God of heaven, understanding most perfectly the constitution of human nature and the weakness of men, knew what was necessary to be revealed and what ideas must be planted in their minds in order that they might be enabled to exercise faith in him unto eternal life. In other words, he's saying, 
God knew what he was doing when he created us in this fallen mortal condition, and he knew exactly what we needed to know in order to be able to grow to become more like him. So he's not just revealing truths, he's revealing his own attributes, his own characteristics, and by the way, if you look for them on scripture page and start marking them, they're all over the place. You can see the fingerprints of God on every page of scripture in our canon. So the first attribute that they mention in Lecture Fourth is that he is a God of knowledge, that he is omniscient, meaning he knows everything. The, the lectures on faith are teaching very powerfully, and Joseph Smith in other settings also teaches this, that there is not anything save God knows it, as, as he's quoting the scriptures here, that he is a God of all knowledge. Stop and think about that for a minute. In Lecture Fourth, as it's describing this attribute, the question gets brought up, could you really have bedrock faith in a being who doesn't know everything, who 5,400 years from now might learn something and say, oh, oh no, I, if only I had known that back then, I would have done things differently. Can you see how our faith would become weaker in that God? It would become shaken in that being? How firm a foundation is laid for our faith in a God who knows everything, who is not in practice mode or in rough draft mode or trying an experiment. He is a God of all knowledge, and even though we and all of our collective wisdom as human beings on the earth are continuing to learn and grow and develop in our understanding, God isn't doing that. His growth, his, his uh, increase isn't coming in knowledge, it's coming in things like thrones, kingdoms, principalities, dominions, exaltations. So yes, there is an eternal progression and growth, just not in the realm of, of these elements that are his attributes. He's got all perfection in these realms. The second one is that he is a god of faith, or power is the way it's described in Lecture um, 4th, verse 6, that he is a god of faith or power, that he does everything with all power. You cannot have faith unto life and salvation in a God who is lacking in ability to do things. Our God has all power to do all things that are necessary for all of us to attain unto life and salvation, and that's very clear. Third, he is a God of justice, perfect fairness. There is nothing unjust in, in his being. He's incapable of treating people unfairly, and you and I could never have faith in a God who had the capacity to treat us unfairly. The reason the, faith, the, the foundation for our faith is so sure and steadfast and immovable is the fact that he is perfect in that attribute as well. Fourthly, he is a God of judgment. Not just judgment, but perfect judgment. 
that justice and judgment are the habitation of his throne. He, he's the rock, and all of his judgments are just. So these two go hand in hand, justice and judgment. Uh, by the way, sometimes in the gospel when we're talking with each other, we love emphasizing the attributes of mercy and love and kindness and graciousness, and we don't like talking about God's justice and God's judgment. The Book of Mormon does a great job of describing how God's justice actually becomes merciful in so many different ways for us, that judgment – brothers and sisters, we need a God of perfect judgment, otherwise all of the injustices that were done to you would never be fixed, they they would always remain as a pain point for you, but a God of perfect judgment matched perfectly with complete mercy and love, that is the perfect combination that we're looking for in the heavens, and we can have complete faith in that. Number five, one of his attributes is he is a God of mercy. Are you noticing that that's kind of a repeat from the merciful and gracious character of God back in lecture third? It says, uh, they quote Psalm 89, 14, mercy and truth shall go before thy faith, by, before thy face. And then quoting Nehemiah, but thou art a God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful. I love the fact that they repeated the, the mercy attribute with the mercy character trait from lecture third. And sixthly is another repeat that he is a God of truth. I'm not sure why they repeated those two, number five and six, that they both show up on, on both lists, um, but I love the fact that he says here uh, that God is long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. It's almost as if they're saying the first one back in lecture third is a character trait, God is truth, almost as if we could stand at a pulpit and say, similar to how we say, I know the gospel is true, or I know the church is true, we could just as easily say, I know that God is true, he's true, and he embodies all truth. He's, he is true to the faith, he's true to us, he's true to, to the laws of the eternities, he's true to all of his promises, but he also is a God of truth using this attribute where it says, mercy and truth shall go before thy face, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. He is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment, a God of truth, without iniquity, just and right is he. Okay, so now as we as we get ready to turn over to lecture fifth, um, I just want to hit one more concept on this knowledge because it comes up a lot, people wondering about how much does God really know. Listen to this. Without the knowledge of all things, God would not be able to save any portion of his creatures, for it is by reason of the knowledge which he has of all things from the beginning to the end 
that enables him to give that understanding to his creatures by which they are made partakers of eternal life. So part of all of this stuff that we've been talking about is the fact that God, this God of knowledge, this God of, that knows all things, also knows what portion of his attributes and characteristics and perfections he needs to reveal to the earth for us to be able to have sufficient means to exercise faith in him unto life and salvation. Now, uh, let's jump over to lecture fifth. This one is the lecture that caused many people to, to struggle. It, it is a theological deep, deep lecture. It's only three verses long. Now, mind you, the second verse is nearly two pages long all by itself, but it is the shortest lecture, but it caused some, some doctrinal struggles for people through the ages. But it is, I believe, one of the most beautiful uh, sermons on the Godhead and the unity and the oneness of the Godhead that I know of. So this lecture fifth is going to help us see some of those principles. So verse one is very short. It says at the very end of verse one, we shall in this lecture speak of the Godhead. We mean the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then verse two opens with, there are two personages who constitute the great matchless governing and supreme power over all things. Now it's going to go on a little bit. People get confused because they say, wait a minute, at the bottom of verse 1 it said the Godhead was three, and now it opens up with verse 2 saying there are two personages who constitute this great matchless governing supreme power over all things. Notice the other qualifier, by whom all things were created and made, that are created and made, whether visible or invisible, whether in heaven, on earth, or in the earth, under the earth, or throughout the immensity of space. It seems that they're making the distinction here that the Father and the Son are the ones who are performing those creative acts. So while the Godhead involves all three, the supreme uh, governing power over all these things resides with the Father and the Son. And then it gives more descriptions of the Father and then the Son. The Father being a personage of spirit, glory, and power, possessing all perfection. Many people read that and say, wait a minute, so God the Father is a personage of spirit? Because right after that it's going to say that the Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, is a personage of tabernacle. You'll notice that the word tabernacle in scriptures usually refers to an earthly, mortal existence, the tabernacle. God the Father is not mortal, he's immortal. We learn in section 130 that the Father and the Son have bodies of flesh and bones, never flesh and blood, it's always flesh and bone as tangible as man's. And so then the questions come, and, and in the book of John, the Gospel of John, it talks about God is spirit. Well, in the Doctrine and Covenants we learn this exact phrase, man is spirit. I, you, we are personages of spirit as well, but we're not just personages of spirit, we're personages of spirit and of flesh, a tabernacle because we're mortal. 
notice the description back of the Father, the Father being a personage of spirit, glory, and power. If you say somebody is a personage of glory, it doesn't mean you ignore all of their other characteristics or attributes, or a god of power doesn't mean that that's all they are, or a person of spirit doesn't mean that you ignore everything else that they have. He's giving you descriptions of who God is so that we can have greater faith in him that leads us to become more like him unto life and salvation by accessing the Savior's Atonement. So while it sounds a little bit confusing at times, if you read all of it in context, you can see what they're trying to teach us here. Notice it describes the, the Son, Jesus Christ, at the bottom of, of this page. He kept the law of God and remained without sin, showing thereby that it is in the power of man to keep the law and remain also without sin, and also that by him a righteous judgment might come upon all flesh. So again, they're setting the stage as Jesus being the perfect prototype that we all should be striving to emulate and to become like and to come unto him. And then it spends the rest of verse 2 talking about the oneness and the unity. You know, it's interesting, because of the the doctrinal differences with other religions and other uh, theological um, perspectives in the world, we sometimes, as members of the church, we feel almost like defensive, like we need to we need to go and make sure that they understand that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are separate and distinct beings. You'll notice that we don't often emphasize when we're talking to people the oneness of the Godhead we almost want to overemphasize the separateness of the Godhead. I find it fascinating that Jesus doesn't spend very much time, if any, talking about how separate and distinct he is from the Father and the Son. Every time Jesus seems to talk about the Godhead and his relationship with, within that Godhead, he seems to emphasize that word right there, one. He's trying to bring a unity, and it's almost like we want to overemphasize disunity, if you will, or separateness, not that we're taking away from, from their unity, but I love lecture fifth when read in that context. Allow them to be absolutely unified and one in all things other than their physical uh, existence itself. Kind of like he describes in John chapter 17 with the intercessory prayer, uh, there in verse 19, 20, and 21, where he's praying to the Father, and he's praying in behalf of his apostles, his eleven apostles who are there, and he's praying for all those who will believe in me through their word, and then he says that they all may be one as we are one, that they may be one in us. Jesus is seeking for not separateness between us and him or between us and each other, he's seeking to unify us. And when read in that light, I think there's a lot we could learn from our, our lecture fifth on the Godhead about 
the kind of a family relationship we should be seeking to build, the kind of award culture or a stake culture or a world culture where we should be striving to build is this unity, this oneness, not this separateness or this, this great divide between what makes us different. Uh, notice verse 3, from the foregoing account of the Godhead, which is given in his revelations, the saints have a sure foundation laid for the exercise of faith unto life and salvation through the atonement and mediation of Jesus Christ, by whose blood they have a forgiveness of sin and also a sure reward laid up for them in heaven, even that of partaking the fullness of the Father and the Son through the Spirit. So isn't that interesting? Jesus sheds his blood, his humanity, so that you and I can have access to that to overcome the stains of our own struggles with mortality symbolized by blood so that we can attain unto that perfect oneness with him and the Father in the resurrection where blood doesn't come into play, it's flesh and bones. That's how the scriptures always describe resurrected beings. So Jesus' mortality is shed for us. Unless we forget, every week he gives us a little cup that symbolizes that blood that was shed, that humanity, that life that was given so that you and I could have eternal life. It's beautiful. Now we go to lecture sixth. This is an answer to the question of how do I know that my life, the course of my life, is in accordance with God's will? Remember, three things are necessary for me to have faith in God unto life and salvation, an idea that he exists, a correct idea of his character, perfections, and attributes, and a certain knowledge that the course in my life is in accordance with his will. So, once again, these lectures on faith, it's a systematic theology. It's this very it's this very logical, very organized flow through this deep, deep, complex topic called faith that I think I'll study the rest of my life and still never get close to the bottom of it. Um, lecture six is now going to answer that question, how do I know if my course in life is actually in accordance with God's will? Uh, so here he gives some examples of what people have done in the past, um, but the real crux of the matter is found in verse 7. Let us here observe that a religion that does not require the sacrifice of all things – did you notice the qualifier? – of all things never has power sufficient to produce the faith necessary unto life and salvation. It's – that is probably the most quoted segment of all of the lectures on faith, is that little, little sentence right there. Listen to this, a little further down in verse 7. When a man has offered in sacrifice all that he has for the truth's sake, not even withholding his life, and believing before God that he has uh, been called to make this sacrifice because he seeks to do his will, he does know 
most assuredly that God does and will accept his sacrifice and offering, and that he has not nor will not seek his face in vain. Uh, back in verse 5, this is what he said, for a man to lay down his all, his character and reputation, his honor and applause, his good name among men, his houses, his lands, his brothers and sisters, his wife and children, and even his own life also, counting all things but filth and dross for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ requires more than mere belief or supposition that he is doing the will of God, but actual knowledge, realizing that when these sufferings are ended, he will enter into eternal rest and be a partaker of the glory of God. So he then goes to describe the sacrifice of Abel, that he, he knew that it was going to be accepted, versus Cain, who didn't know that his sacrifice was going to be accepted. Uh, verse 12 has another concept that is widely known from the lectures on faith. For doubt and faith do not exist in the same person at the same time. So that persons whose minds are under doubts and fears cannot have unshaken confidence, and where unshaken confidence is not, there faith is weak. Now, some of you may be hearing that and, and now wanting to beat yourself up because maybe you've struggled with some fears or some, some deep questions that have troubled you over many years. Don't be discouraged by that. The purpose of lectures on faith is to help you turn to God and move forward in increased faith to become like him because you understand what kind of a being he is more and you're trying to access the Savior's atonement to help you to become more like that over time. So just because you have doubt doesn't mean that you can't turn more fully to the Lord and move forward in faith to have the God of the universe who knows all things help you slowly discover truths that are going to bless your life as you move forward. By the way, lecture sixth, instead of having the catechism or the questions and answers at the end of it, like all the other lectures have, it says, this lecture is so plain and the facts are set, so, set forth so self-evident that it is deemed unnecessary to form a catechism upon it. The student is therefore instructed to commit the whole to memory. So if you're living in the School of the Prophets in 1834-1835, your homework for Lecture 6 is just memorize all 12 verses, and they're long, but they're powerful on how do I know that my life is in accordance with God's will? And the ultimate answer is sacrifice. Make sacrifices that God asks you to make, and then you'll know that they're accepted. And now we come to the final lecture. Lecture seventh, what are the effects that flow from this kind of faith that we've been talking about trying to build? Uh, look at verse three. It says, let us here offer some explanation in relation to faith, that our meaning may be clearly comprehended. We ask, then, what are we to understand by a man's working by faith? We answer, we understand that when a man works by faith, he works by mental exertion instead of physical force. It is by words, instead of exerting his physical powers with which every being works, 
when he works by faith. Uh, this is powerful. Towards the end of verse 3 he says, faith then works by words, and with these its mightiest works have been and will be performed. It's not with the arm of flesh, it's with the, these powerful words. Now, you come down to verse 8, and he says, when men begin to live by faith, they begin to draw near to God, and when faith is perfected, they are like him, and because he is saved, they are saved also, for they will be in the same situation he is in because they have come to him, and when he appears they shall be like him, for they will see him as he is. And then that obviously raises some additional questions that they answer in verse 9. What constitutes the real difference between a saved person and one not saved? Here's the answer. The difference is in the degree of their faith. Did you catch that? The difference is in the degree of their faith. One's faith has become perfect enough to lay hold upon eternal life and the other's has not. Uh, but to be a little more particular, let us ask, where shall we find a prototype into whose likeness we may be assimilated in order that we may be made partakers of life and salvation? So where are we going to find a saved being? We need a model, and the obvious answer is, it is Christ. All will agree in this. He is the prototype or standard of salvation, or in other words, that he is a saved being. And if we should continue our interrogation and ask how it is that he is saved, the answer would be, because he is a just and holy being, and if he were anything different from what he is, he would not be saved. So for us to be saved, we need to follow that same pattern, which means we need to do a lot more than just believe in God. We have to have a correct idea of what kind of a being he is. What are his attributes? What are his characteristic traits? What are his perfected uh, abilities? And how can we strive to implement them into our own life and relationships today? It goes on to say here in, in the bottom of verse 9, salvation consists in the glory, authority, majesty, power, and dominion which Jehovah possesses, and in nothing else, and no being can possess it but himself or one like him. So he goes on to quote John, the first epistle of John, third chapter, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, and every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. So the, the seventh lecture keeps bringing us back to example after example of after example that if you want more faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you need to learn more about what Jesus Christ was, what he did, what he taught, how he lived, and do our very best to plead with him for help to keep emulating it and strive and repent when we fall short and keep forgiving others when they fall short in the process and just keep moving forward, and that's how the faith increases as we make more and more and more sacrifices for him. Now jumping clear down, 
uh, the longest verse in the entire lectures, or lecture seventh, uh, verse 17. It covers two and a, an, an eighth of a page. Um, it's very long. Partway down it says, speaking of the former day saints, by their faith they could obtain heavenly visions, the ministering of angels, have knowledge of the spirits of just men made perfect, of the general assembly and church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven, of God, the judge of all, of Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and become familiar with the third heavens, see and hear things which were not only unutterable but were unlawful to utter. In answer to the question from Lecture Seventh, what are the effects that flow from this kind of faith? Well, that's a pretty good list of things that the Lord has offered us. Now, verse 18, if the question is asked, how are they to obtain the knowledge of God? Because there is a great difference between believing in God and knowing him. Knowledge implies more than faith. Um, so, again, we need to become more acquainted with the being of God and Jesus Christ, not just um, the, the concept of God or the concept of Christ. And in the final verse of the Lectures on Faith, verse 20, Lecture 7, it says, when faith comes, it brings its train of attendants with it, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, gifts, wisdom, knowledge, miracles, healings, tongues, interpretations of tongues, etc. All these appear when faith appears on the earth, and all these disappear when faith disappears from the earth. For these are the effects of faith and always have attended and always will attend it. For where faith is, there will the knowledge of God be also and with all these things which pertain thereto, revelations, visions, and dreams, as well as every necessary thing in order that the possessors of faith may be perfected and obtain salvation." Brothers and sisters, this, this particular um, institute class that I took on the lectures on faith, this particular book, uh, has had such a huge effect on my life, on my perspective of God, on my perspective of myself and, and my loved ones and people in my circle of influence, the way I read my scriptures. Uh, it, it has opened up so many avenues for discovering new truths about what it means to strive to become more like Christ and to really truly have faith in God the, the Eternal Father, his Son Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Ghost, uh, how firm a foundation is laid for your faith, and that foundation was laid by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We know that he lives, we know that he loves us, we know that he is a God of all these perfected attributes, and he's given us all that we need to be able to continually grow and progress to become more like him. So as we close this episode, I want you to know that I know that God does exist. Uh, he has revealed his characteristics, his perfections, his attributes to us 
through prophets and through the chain of human testimony and scriptures, and thank heaven for living prophets, seers, and revelators on the earth today. They are sent to help increase a knowledge of who God is and what he wants us to become, and thank heaven for those uh, opportunities that he has given us to sacrifice in order for us to come to know that the course we're pursuing in life is in accordance with his will, and when all those things line up, it gives us hope. It gives us the ability to move forward on that covenant path, trusting in the Lord that he knows what he's doing and that he will help us continue to grow to become more like him and to ultimately attain unto life and salvation as a joint heir with Christ. And we leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Know that you are loved.